Warning. By listening to the conversations on this podcast, you will begin to live the intrepid way. Life is short and moving fast. Only we can show you how to fully integrate a new business mindset coupled with a lifestyle design that will equip you with a new approach to overcoming and in fact thriving on the daily grind of life. And now, here is your host, Todd Schnick. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm your host, Todd Schneck. I have been looking forward to this interview, goodness, for probably several months now, a heck, several years since I first came across this gentleman's work. I'm really grateful that he is making the time to join us. Uh, he has a recent book out that is just mind-blowing. I'm still learning an awful lot from it, uh, but he's got quite a canon of work that most of you are probably quite familiar with. I'm very much looking forward to this conversation. We're joined this morning by Robert Green. He's a best-selling author of many books. Most are probably familiar and certainly came across his work initially, as I did, through his bestseller, I think probably like 1.2 million copies of The 48 Laws of Power. But he's got a new book. Well, well over 2 million. Well over 2 over, million. Well, someone's got to update a bio. <laughs> 2.4 million, yeah. Wow. Anyway, Robert Green, welcome to the show. Thanks very much for having me, Todd. My pleasure. Uh, yeah, no, The 48 Laws of Power is a, is one of the great books. I call it kind of the modern Machiavelli, the prince. It's kind of my version of that. Uh, such a great read. But we're here today to talk actually about the, the latest book, The Laws of Human Nature. And honestly... That's proven to me, Robert, to be a much more impactful book for me. Uh, I'm, I'm not the kind of guy that exercises and uses power like like you talk about in that, in that initial book. But uh, this recent book really, I think, has the power, has, the, uh, has the, the potential to just change a lot of lives. So anyway, looking forward to diving in that. Before we get any further, Robert, take a quick second, remind the audience a bit about you and your background and the work that you're out there doing. Well, basically, I worked as a writer for many years, but in many different mediums, including journalism and film, Hollywood here. And then I got a chance to write my first book, which was sort of my major break in life. That was back in 1998, The 48 Loss of Power. It combined all my interests, strategy and history. And I am kind of fascinated by the dark side of power by people who are con artists and seducers. And so my first three books sort of were on those themes. First book was 48 Laws of Power, then I did The Art of Seduction, and then The 33 Strategies of War, which is sort of my version of Sun Tzu's Art of War. <laughs> then I did a book with 50 Cent, the rapper, because my books are very popular in the hip-hop community. We co-wrote a book called The 50th Law, and then after that, I did the book Mastery, and then this latest book. And, you know, I mostly just write books. It's what consumes all of my time. Uh, I do some consulting work, et cetera. And, but mostly, I'm just a, a writer of books. Well, and we're grateful for that. Uh, I've read four of your books. Just finished uh, the most recent one, obviously. Uh, but the one by 50 Cent was a, was a great one. And, uh, you know, it's funny. Speaking of Mastery, I was... Uh, I uh, have made a decision in 2019. I got tired of watching uh, all these the same old movies with the same old storylines, and I, I decided I wasn't going to binge 
on any Netflix shows this year. So I was only going to watch documentaries. And so I'm watching one just just last week. You and I had long already agreed to to do this interview. And it was one called Maestro about a conductor who does a, a world oh, okay. tour. And, and lo and behold, there's Robert Greene talking <laughs> about the, the mastery of, of classical music and, and all that that implies. So it was I, I had a big chuckle about that. All right, so... I guess I will close the introduction by saying thank you for all these great reads, uh, these great works. Uh, they are. You know, we're going to talk about what this collection is ultimately going to become, and I have some ideas on that. But the the most recent book is called "The Laws of Human Nature." So why did you have to put this one out? Well, in Mastery, I had a chapter on social intelligence. The idea was that it's a book about how to become a master in your field, how to reach a very high level of creativity to the point where you have like an intuitive feel for the subject and how to become like the Michael Jordan in your field. But I had a chapter on social intelligence, the idea being that if you're, you can be technically brilliant at your work, but if you don't understand people, you'll just be stepping on your own toes. You'll never get very far in life. And that chapter had, I had a huge response from readers. They said they liked it. They enjoyed it. It was helpful. But they kept saying they wished there was more. They wanted like more information. So I saw a great need for that. And also I consider this book kind of the culmination of all the research and all the prior books that I've been doing. They were all kind of funneling towards this one book. It's sort of a compendium of everything I've learned about people, about myself, because a lot of the book is about how you look at yourself, but also about how to deal with the difficult kind of talks of people that cross your path. So it's sort of the culmination of 20 years of thinking and research. Well, when I first got wind that this one was coming out, I had uh, uh, our mutual friend Ryan Holiday was talking about it. And that's where I first uh, was tipped off that you were getting ready to put this one out. And he sort of couched it as this is the culmination of all these great volumes. So I... A typical question that a guy like me would ask on a show like this, uh, but then I realized it was almost an absurd question, but I'm going to ask it anyway because I'm curious how uh, Robert Greene is going to answer it. But I, I, is is it more important than ever how to understand human nature? I mean, I, I, are we at such a stage in our history with all the global conflict and the division that's going on I mean, and the stress in the workplace and how careers are changing and and how technology is impacting things. Is it more important than ever to understand human nature, or is, is that always been important? It's always been important, but I agree with you. It is more important now than ever for various reasons, obviously, uh, and I make a big point of it in the book. I think we've all become more self-absorbed, and I include myself in that. It has a lot to do with technology and smartphones and the amount of time that we spend interacting with technology as opposed to interacting with actual real people in the flesh. Social intelligence is like any skill. It's a function of repetition and practice. The more you deal with people at work or in the home, the more you become comfortable with people's weirdness, with how they're different from you, and how you have to be subtle sometimes, and you can't just bulldoze people. So you learn through in constant interactions how to deal with a variety of people. And if you spend so much of your time immersed in your smartphone or on the computer or watching things online, you're not getting that flat person-to-person -person interaction. 
And that skill that we is kind of almost natural to us humans as a social animal, it starts to atrophy. And studies have shown how levels of self-absorption and narcissism are increasing among, among the population today, particularly among young people. The kind of skills that I think were almost taken for granted in the 19th century. Just imagine yourself back in the 19th century. You had no television. You had no real technology. All your fun and entertainment came from dealing with people. You had to socialize all the time or you'd die from boredom. And so people were constantly interacting, and it was a skill they developed. We've lost that. And then on top of it all, because of social media and because of certain trends that are going on in the world that I discuss very heavily in the book, we see a level of kind of tribalism and heated emotions that the, that the Internet and social media naturally feed. You know, I talk a lot in the book. I have a whole chapter on envy and how envy is, is deeply rooted in human nature, including all of us. Well, social media takes a natural kind of fault in us all and just makes it a thousand times worse because we're all aware of what everybody else has, what they're doing, how many great places they're vacationing in, the, the amazing partner that they've just met, all in all, and it just feeds our natural tendency to envy. I could go through all the chapters in the book, or most of them, and show you how technology and the internet is just making some of these qualities built into our nature a lot worse. So I think it's always been important, but it's never been more important. Mm. Yeah, I was going to talk about that, but uh, you kind of went into it there, and it's great stuff. And and yeah, I mean, it, you know, Instagram is, is is definitely worsening the envy issue out there, and there's no doubt about it. But it's important to understand, though, when I got the idea that this book was coming out and it was about understanding human nature, I was thinking, good, this is going to give me the tools and the context and the framework I need to understand the people I interact with. But what's been the most striking lesson for me as I've gone through the book was the big part of the work here is you have got to understand yourself. I mean, you have got to deeply examine who you are and right. your faults and your strengths and your weaknesses. And and this book is useless to you if you're not willing to do that, that self-examination, right? Definitely. Definitely. Because I made this point in Mastery in that chapter I mentioned, but I'm reiterating it here. The people you're dealing with on an everyday basis, you're not really seeing who they are. You're seeing projections of yourself. You're coloring them with your own emotions. So the people you're looking at, whether you love them or hate them, they are projections of things that are going on inside of you. And if you don't understand yourself, if you're not aware of who you are, number one, you're going to, that process is just going to be continuing. You're never going to see people as they are. And number two, um, you know, we're all cut from the same cloth. We all inherited we all come from the same ancestors hundreds of millions of years ago. And so we all have the same brain, the same tendencies. So if some people among us are toxic narcissists, and I discuss that a lot in the book, it's not it's the case is that we are all narcissists. We all have narcissistic tendencies. We are all human. We all are self-absorbed to some degree or another and explain in the book why. And so you need a degree of humility. 
in order to understand people, and you have to be able to not be constantly judging them. And so your tendency is to see people, oh, he's a narcissist, oh, she's aggressive, passive aggressive, oh, he's the envying type, or they're irrational. No, you have these qualities in yourself, and your ability to recognize them in yourself will make it a lot easier to actually accurately see it in other people. You know, that's, that's sort of the main idea. <laughs> well, you said in the book, you, you have to recognize and examine the dark side of your character. I mean, I mean, and that's how people that want to do that. They don't want to even admit that they have a dark side, but we do. I mean that, and that's an okay thing. As you said, that this is built into who we are as a human being. And I mean, why is it important to understand that dark side of your own character? I explained in the book, I call it the shadow. Everybody has it. It comes because we were born as children. We had all sorts of natural emotions that we felt and expressed. We both loved and hated our parents at the same time. We could be very sweet and angelic, but at the next moment we could be quite nasty and vengeful. We were just this sort of complete being. And over time, we were forced to kind of socialize and soften a lot of these qualities that are natural to us. And it's an important part of becoming a social animal. We can't just go around, you know, attacking and yelling at people and trying to bully them. But these qualities that are natural to us, this energy that we had as children, it just doesn't go away as we start to become try these sort of sweet angelic people that, that our parents want us to become. It simply goes into this dark side of our character, the shadow. The shadow part of yourself, and everybody has it, it's not just your mischievous qualities that you had as a child. It's everything that you're trying to disguise from other people. So that also includes your insecurities and your vulnerabilities and all those parts of it that you're trying to hide from other people and keep down. There's a lot of pressure building inside. These, these qualities want to come out. They want to be released. And they'll come out when you're feeling under stress or when you're not getting enough attention from people or you feel challenged and insecure. And it'll come out in the form of some bitchy kind of comment that you later regret, <laughs> some action that surprises you and your friends. You put all your money into bitcoins and you lose all of it. You don't understand what came over you in that moment, etc. So, you know, we all have that. And the one thing to understand about your shadow is that it operates by you're not being aware of it. If you're not aware that you have one, then it could come out in all different forms. And I talk about how, for instance, the social justice warrior that we've all encountered on the internet, people like that feel like they have a license to be as nasty, mm -hmm. manipulative, and mean-spirited and intolerant as they want to be, because it's all for some great cause. We've encountered them all the time. And this is the, their shadow side that's coming out. It's basically, you know, it's giving them license to do, to give it full expression to all of these dark qualities. If you're aware of this, if you're aware of your shadow, if you're aware that there's an aggressive part of your personality that wants to come out, you rob it of a lot of its power. And that awareness now gives you the ability to perhaps channel some of this energy into something productive. I talk in the book about not being afraid of your own ambitions. Ambition is a good thing. And a lot of people in the world, 
because everything has to be so PC and we all have to pretend that we're such angels and saints. They're afraid to show that they're too ambitious in this world. Well, you want to take that natural kind of aggressive energy that you have and channel it into something productive, into writing a great book, into making some fantastic startup, into being great at your business or whatever that is, so that that energy, you don't try and repress it, you try and use it in productive manners. Well, as you said at the top of the show, I mean, we have natural skills at, at, at these things. And, you know, the context with which you brought it up was that technology and social media are hiding and making that harder to use these natural skills. But but we have instincts and, and we have these characteristics as a human being that, that were designed so that we could live our best lives and, and interact efficiently and effectively with people. But here's my struggle with <laughs> when I'm saying this with a smile on my face. This book was hard for me because what I normally can do with any typical book I read is I can highlight a bunch of it and pull out of five to ten lessons that I can pull away and, and say, all right, here's some things I can really think about. And I can practice. And I can discipline myself. But this is one of those books now that it's now entirely highlighted. When I was reviewing my highlights to kind of prepare for today's conversation, I felt like I had to read the whole book again because I highlighted so much of this. And and therein lies an issue that I, that I, want, to be, I want to ask you honestly. Sure. Uh, yeah, the, the the typical person who wants to be better, or they wouldn't have bought this book. But then there's so much to unpack here. There's so much to think about. There's so much to to process and analyze and study and 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 think about and observe. I mean, it's almost impossible, Robert. How do? You, what's your best <laughs> advice to someone like me, or your typical reader? You know, your typical reader. You know who who they are and what they're trying to do. How how do they, how do they use this? I mean, because it's there's so much here. It's almost impossible to, to take every lesson and apply it to your daily life. I mean, should you pick one or two things and really focus on? What's your what's your counsel on that? Well, I, ap I apologize. <laughs> I'm very sorry <laughs> to make your life so difficult. Um, well, the book is meant to be practical. It's meant to change how you look at the world and how you look at yourself and people. I always have this kind of Machiavellian goal where I'm going to seduce you into reading this entire book and I'm kind of going to get under your skin and I'm going to change from the inside out how you look at the world. So I recommend reading the book, if you can stomach it cover to cover, not trying necessarily to apply everything in your life because you would go crazy, obviously, as you mentioned, but just kind of getting a sense of this new sort of way of looking at the world through this lens of human nature. Basically, I'm just trying to show you all the forces that are governing your behavior that you're not aware of and to sort of take that all in. And then if you can do that to kind of go back and make it a more practical, have a more practical approach. And how you would do that is, first of all, when you're reading the book, you should constantly be taking notes about people that, or, or yourself and events in your life that it reminds you of. So that you can, you know, I do that when I read a book that I like a lot, in which I'm highlighting almost everything is I'm taking notes on the margins of the book. I like to write in books. I write the initials of the person that it's reminding me of. <laughs> Sign, you know? Yeah, I love or, it. Or, or, or I put me in big letters and, and an exclamation point kind of thing. And so then you go back and you see some of these elements that stu stood out to you in your first read, and you kind of analyze them, and you look at yourself 
Now, the book is meant for you to, to reflect upon yourself. And if you're in denial, it's going to be very hard to read this book. But I don't let you get away with being in denial, as you know, if you read it. I'm very hard on the reader. So if you're someone who says, no, I don't feel envy, I'm sorry. I agree with everything in this book, but I am not the envying type. You're simply not being honest with yourself. And so what I want you to do in each of these chapters in which I'm trying to point the finger at you and hold a mirror up to you is to do some self-reflection and to actually think of how this really does apply to you, how you are often irrational, how you do kind of react in the moment instead of thinking long-term, how you do have a dark side, how you can be grandiose, how success has kind of gone to your head in the past, etc. I want you, as much as often as you can, to reflect on yourself and take notes. You know, use get a notebook out if you need to and take notes about things about yourself. And then you can go back to that and kind of use it as a reference guide. But um, I wouldn't, you know, the 48 Laws of Power is meant more to sort of look at chapters that are kind of relevant to your situation. But I wouldn't want you to sort of skip chapters here. I don't think there's any chapter in here that isn't important to you. And I don't mean that in some, you know, very arrogant way. I think every chapter has something in it that will benefit you. And I think it's best to read the whole thing and then kind of go back to those particular areas that seem very relevant to your life. No, I agree wholeheartedly. This book absolutely makes you say, oh, that's why I handled that situation. <laughs> that's why I was a bonehead there. I mean, it absolutely yeah. does that, and that's great. And yeah, and you can't skip chapters because every chapter has something relevant to you, and you've done something good or bad in your life that are reflective of what you're talking about there. Yeah, I absolutely have to do that. You know, thinking about your growing body of work, you mentioned uh, all the books. I almost feel like now that if I had a child coming into the world, I would say, you don't, I'm going to, I'm going to homeschool you. And all we're going to do is we're just going to use Robert's volumes here. I mean, this is everything you need to know to, to survive and thrive in this world. I mean, is that kind of the, the goal and mission of, of this catalog of Robert Greene material? I mean, is it's becoming this, this is the guide to humanity? I mean, is, is that kind of the, the long-term vision of what this whole thing has now become? Well, you know, it does sound kind of grand, <clears throat> grandiose to say it that way, but I wouldn't necessarily disagree. Uh, I mean, in, in Laws of Human Nature, I stress the absolute importance of our earliest years, those first four years in which we are so vulnerable and so open to the influence of people around us. And so much of who we are is formed in those early years. And a lot of it can be negative. A lot of pat bad patterns are being formed. And I've had people read the book who just had children and they go, it really, really shook them up and made them extremely aware of how they want to raise their child and how they don't want to create some of these patterns of behavior that I point out in the book. So it's had a big impact on several people I know who just had children. So I think it can help parenting in a big way. My last book, Mastery, I think is very important for anybody who's in that 18 to 22 year old range, who's about to enter their, their work world, their work years, and maybe isn't quite sure of their career or where to go, 
I think that book is absolutely essential for them. Um, you know, and then, yeah, I think all of them can very much benefit your mindset because it's strange, Todd. These are things, the, the stuff I'm talking about, to me at least, is the stuff that's most relevant to your daily life. It's what I want myself. I wish I could have read when I was younger. And people don't write books so much about that. And teachers don't teach these things in school. And parents don't necessarily talk about a lot of these things that I'm talking about in the book. So I think, you know, it's, it's, it, it can kind of have a, a kind of a teacher type role for a lot of people in life. No matter where you are, you know, particularly the younger you are, the better. Well, someone listening to this who has never read The 48 Laws of Power will say, well, wait, I'm not going to be a head of state, so I don't need that book. But yeah, no, when you exist in a relationship, when you are a boss or have a boss or you have you work in a team or, or I mean, <laughs> power is, is part of how you operate. And so, yeah, all these books are relevant to how we go through life. It's great, it's great stuff. My favorite part of all of your books and what I get the most jazz about and when I'm reading through and I get to the next where you go deep dive on, an, on a historical figure and you kind of tell their story from, and as you said, a lot of it is their childhood and how that informs and infects who they are and how they operate through the rest of their of their lives. Those are my favorite parts. I, I love how you go into all these. Um, and I, I never thought I would ever be fascinated and have life lessons from Coco Chanel um, <laughs> or Chekhov. You know, I didn't think I would learn things about myself from reading about Chekhov. I mean, talk about your process there. I mean, I, you said at the very top of the show that this book is a culmination of years and years and years of research. Yeah. And so I'm just curious as to how you the work that your process and how you study these historical figures, some very ancient and some um, quite modern. Uh, so what's your process there in terms of taking a, an individual from history who we all know, not that well, but we're familiar with, and pull out life lessons for all of us from? Well, there's several things involved. Number one, I, I like telling stories because I believe that that's how I draw readers into my book. Books have to be entertaining. They have to be fun or you're not going to listen to it, you're not going to absorb the information. So I'm sort of seducing the reader and drawing them into this book by telling them stories of historical figures and trying my hardest to make them entertaining and relevant to their daily life. So when you're reading a story about Napoleon Bonaparte, you're also thinking, yeah, that's something about my boss that reminds me about him, or to that effect. So I want to make history very alive. For the reader. I don't want to make it the sort of dusty academic subject. And so I find I'm drawn to certain characters in history who I find are very dramatic, who are either brilliant or really bad at what they do. And so the lessons we get are very stark of someone who is extremely clever or someone who is so incredibly stupid that, you know, we can all learn from that. And I look when I read a biography. I try and make that person come to life. I try to literally think, let's say Napoleon was sitting here in my office in Los Angeles. What was he like? Who was he as a flesh and blood human being? I have to read between the lines of the biographies that I read and make that character come to life. And I'm always looking for little, little details and facts that no one else is really diving into that kind of, to me, demonstrate who they are. So, you know, one of the characters in the book is Richard Nixon, 
who is sort of the story about the shadow. We were talking about the darks. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I'm reading about Richard Nixon's childhood. And I read that he was crying all the time as a baby. No one had ever seen a baby cry so much. And his mother didn't know what to do with him. And, and the father kind of despised him for crying all the time. And I thought, God, there's something strange about that. Because everybody was pointing that out. Now, obviously, when he got older, he repressed that. You know, he's not somebody who cried at all. Um, it showed to me a, a child who was not getting something, not getting love, who was feeling hurt and unrecognized by his parents. And it sort of fit into the pattern that he had later in life. So I'm always looking for those little tiny details that no one seems to be emphasizing that I think are very eloquent about who a person is. So when you read a story in my book, I want you to, I want that character and that story to come to life so you can really kind of feel the heartbeat of that person that I'm describing. It's not just some sort of dead academic figure from the past. Because history is alive within us all. We are all creations of history. We humans as we are, as you are right now in the 21st century, you are a chain. You are a creation of all of these people in the past who created the English language, who created certain ideas and values. The Civil War, the American Civil War, is still living inside of you, the repercussions. So you are history. And I want to make that very, very vivid for the readers. I want to excite them about that. Well, I think I can speak on behalf of all of your readers. You, you, you are successful at doing that because these characters do come to life, and we and and you see yourself in that. And, and Nixon's a great example and a great segue in where I wanted to go next. And, and the question I was going to ask was the the the, the top level ten thousand foot question is, but can we really change? If we can recognize that we have faults and flaws, and and maybe by reading this book we realize them but but can we change and nixon's a great example of is that possible because i was watching this documentary on nixon and it, it goes through all of his flaws and and there's this discussion in the documentary well if he could have just fixed these uh, these couple of flaws boy he would have been a whole different man a different presidency and and someone countered in the documentary but it was those flaws that made him who he was that gave him the drive to ultimately become president of the United States. So maybe that's why he didn't change. I don't know. I mean, but but can we can we can we as a human being, we we, we have these uh, and again on Nixon Kissinger's famous line, well, can you imagine if someone had just loved this guy as a kid? I yeah. mean, it would have been, a, you know, who, who knows what would have happened? I mean, can we read this book? Or go through other exercises in our life where we, we want to affect change in ourselves. I mean, can we really do that? I mean, I mean, or is it just maybe we can, but it's just a constant effort and it's a constant drive. I mean, talks about talk about discipline, but it's a constant thing. I mean, I mean, can we change? Well, the key is self awareness. That's the difference. That's the dividing line from being able to change yourself and not. Which is why I think a lot of self help books don't really do anything in the mm -hmm. long. Because they're not making you look deeply at your own demons, at your own problems, and your own bad patterns in life. So self-awareness is the key. Uh, the Oracle of Delphi, which is the font of all wisdom in ancient Greece, the motto at the top of it, of that was, know thyself. Self-awareness and self-knowledge is the key to all wisdom. So if Richard Nixon, he was an immensely talented man. He, was, he could have actually been a great president. He was very, very smart. 
was actually quite an intellectual, very well read. But if he had only for a moment looked at himself and looked at some of his inner demons and some of his insecurities that came from his childhood, he would have been a much different person. So, um, you know, it's not easy. And let's just say who you are right now, listeners out there, is a product of genetics that you have no control over. And let's say 80, 85% of your behavior comes from that. And you really can't control, you can't rewire yourself. And maybe another 10 or 15% comes from your parents and how they raised you. And then another factor comes from teachers and peers and experiences. These things are like set in stone. You can't go back in time and alter them. They had a huge impact on you. But there is a small margin of an area in which you can change. If you're aware of some of your bad patterns and bad habits, you have the power to at least reflect before you start getting involved in the next example of your bad pattern and halt it through your awareness of it. If you realize that you are an irrational creature, that emotions are governing your decisions and not you're not just sitting, your plans aren't just being objective, they're riddled with kind of wishes and desires. If you know that, you now have the capacity to go back and look at your plans and your strategies and say, what element of my emotions is coloring this particular decision? Or you can say, why am I buying this car? Is it because of advertising? Or is it because something I really truly want? Why do I feel angry or depressed? Instead of just going along with the most immediate reaction, which is not necessarily true, if you can analyze yourself, if you can get a little bit of distance, and I only mean a little bit, you have that enough margin to sort of change yourself enough so that you can be happier and work better with people. And then finally, you know, I talk a lot about in the book about empathy and the power of empathy and the ability that we humans have to get inside the mindset of other people. It's just an immense, it's an immense tool that has made us who we are today. And empathy is a tool that all of us have. There are people obviously on the autism spectrum that don't really have that. And it's very interesting to study it. But the ability to take the perspective of other people, what is known as the theory of mind, is immensely powerful. You have that potential in you. And it's probably not being used properly because you'd be so self-absorbed. And this book is designed to train you to observe, get outside of yourself and observe people and develop that empathy as a kind of a skill, a muscle that needs constant work. That is something that anybody could change starting tomorrow. You do not have to be a prisoner of your self-absorption. You can suddenly start finding people more interesting. I talk in the book about nonverbal communication. Starting tomorrow, you could take chapter three and apply it right then and there to people that you know and conversations that you're having so that you can you know, begin to start changing some of those self-absorption patterns that you have. So those are some areas that are changing, but I'm realistic. You're not gonna suddenly become somebody who you're not. You have to work with the material that you have.
Well, I mean, you mentioned empathy, and I was going to go there uh, in a few minutes, but I'll, I'll, I'll take it from, from here. I, I, the question, this is almost an impossible question to ask you in a short podcast, uh, but the, the, the what can I do today to begin to better understand human nature? And obviously, empathy, practicing empathy is, is a great tool. Listening is something you talk a lot about in this book, is, and, and there's a real science to that and a real skill to truly listening in in terms of better understanding because if you know what to listen for you can begin to you, you start collecting clues on who this person is and then you can make moves in a good or bad way in terms of responding to those to those those clues but changing attitudes and putting in the work um, understanding that you're not you know we all think we're rational but we're really not i mean there's a million little things that that if you just recognize and acknowledge about yourself that alone is half the battle and then then you and if you're honest with yourself you mentioned that earlier uh boom then all of a sudden this can become possible right right you know each chapter ends with how this somewhat negative trait that i'm describing can be turned into a positive so we talked earlier about envy, and envy is, we all understand, is pretty, can be a very destructive emotion, and is often the reason why people will sabotage another person in a very kind of nasty and manipulative way. So I think envy is a very human reaction. It comes from our constant need to compare ourselves to other people, to what they have, to what they're doing. And I make the point that if you recognize it is natural to feel envy. It is natural to compare yourselves to other people who have more than you. And if you be honest with yourself that you have this tendency, now you can begin to change that, that constant comparing yourself to other people and turn it into something positive. So, for instance, you can compare yourself to people who are excelling in their field, and you can say, I'm going to emulate them. I'm going to become as good as they are. They're a much better basketball player than I am. Instead of feeling envy and trying to sabotage and talk behind their back, I'm just going to put all of my energy into becoming better myself. So use it as a spur to, to, to excellence. Learn to compare yourself to people who have less than you. They're, you know that You're always comparing yourself to people who have more money, more success, more status. Compare yourself to people who have a lot less. And then maybe you'll feel kind of grateful for what you have. That comparing mechanism can turn into a positive trait. But you have to first come to terms and admit that you have this quality. Otherwise, you're just going to remain in denial. Another, I'm not going to call it a human nature hack. I hate that. And nothing hacky about the lessons you teach in this book. But another common scenario for all of us is every day we interact with people we don't like. That rubs us the wrong way. That there's conflict. There's stress. And there's an opportunity there, right? I, and I'm thinking about the, you know, the, the great Lincoln quote that you mentioned in the book. And, you know, I don't like that man. I must get to know him better. Right. So there, I mean, you can almost encapsulate this whole book in that one lesson, right? I mean, that's the right. whole point here. I mean, so talk about the power of that line from, from Lincoln and the opportunity that presents to us, even with people who we have, you know, we think we have real conflict with. Well, we're, you know, the first tendency that we have in dealing with people is to judge them. Mm. When we meet somebody new or we start a new job, we're first trying to put them into a category. 
is this somebody who likes us or doesn't like us? Is this somebody who's friendly or unfriendly or kind of indifferent? Are they, do they remind me of my father or my mother who I loved or hated? We're trying to categorize them and judge them. And because of that, we're not making any effort to understand them. And so, you know, a common scenario that will happen, I think we can all relate to this, is that there's somebody that kind of rubs you the wrong way, um, but you've never met them. They'll be on the phone or it'll be virtual. And then you'll actually meet them and you'll go, wow, they're really not so bad. Mm. Because in person, it's hard to hate people. If you're there flesh, you know, looking at them in the eye and listening to their stories, it's not easy to hate them. But if you're constantly judging and getting into that need to categorize people, you can kind of cut off that very human response of wanting to understand other people. And the thing about Lincoln was he is definitely someone who had a very pronounced shadow side. He had two forms of his shadow. He was a very morbidly sensitive person who was obsessed with death and the sort of childhood sweetheart he had that died. He was kind of a depressive, melancholic person. He was also extremely aggressive. He, he liked to box people and beat the hell out of them when he was eating. <laughs> and he didn't like these parts of himself. He thought they were not good. He needed to, but he wasn't going to repress them and try and be somebody that he wasn't, like Nixon did. He was instead going to use these qualities. And he took the kind of morbid sensitivity, which was all about himself and his own emotions, and he poured it into other people. And he found that in dealing with even people, Confederate soldiers or generals from the other side, that if he took the time to look them in the eye and to hear their story, he couldn't really hate them. There was something inevitably human about them. We have a, I talk about empathy, you brought that up earlier. Empathy is not so, people don't understand that word. We use it kind of incorrectly. Mm. It beca it's too much, people think of it too much as, as an intellectual process. But empathy is a deeply emotional, visceral thing where you're not trying to understand the thoughts of the other person. You're trying to understand their moods, their feelings, what it's like to be them. And even if it's somebody that you don't like, even if it's somebody who is, you know, a toxic narcissist, for instance, and you're never going to change them and you don't want to be in a relationship with them, taking that moment of getting inside their world and understanding them makes it a lot easier to deal with them. I talked in a previous book about Joseph Stalin, one of the nastiest men that ever lived, probably the person responsible for the most mass murders in history. He was an extremely intimidating person. He could make you look in his eyes and you would be shivering and you know you, you just cowed by just the look in his eye. And I talked about a, a composer who stood up to him who didn't get intimidated. And he didn't get intimidated because he understood Stalin. He understood about his childhood and where he came from and how he was such a disturbed child and how he never really had any love as a young boy and all the factors that went into making him kind of a sociopath. So understanding even a negative person will help you not be so intimidated, will help you realize that they're not this mythical monster figure that they want you to believe they are they're actually a wounded little child and so you don't need to feel intimidated you know so it actually can help dealing with anybody that you encounter in life 
Well, let's. Uh, we've talked about two presidents. Let's talk about a third. <laughs> I have to bring up the section on narcissism. When when that was my favorite oh. part of that book was was reading that section uh, and there's many reasons why I was of course thinking of one guy when I was reading that whole section and what was really amazing about that was reading that section on on narcissism really helped you understand who Trump is and how he operates and I mean it was fascinating I don't know that's what you were thinking of when you were writing that chapter I don't know when you wrote that chapter. But, I mean, it, it was amazing. And then, as you said earlier in this conversation, we all have that in us. Uh, reading that section really helped me better understand who that guy is and how he operates and and what's possible there. And, and But then, again, it goes back to our discussion around Nixon. If he changes that, would, would he, he'd be a different, entirely different kind of guy. And would he be as successful? Would he have achieved his election? Who knows? It's fascinating to think about. But we, we all have, no one of us want to admit this, but we do have a little narcissism in us. I mean, and that actually can be a good thing and an opportunity, right, if we use it the right way. Yeah, I, um, I have a different sort of take on narcissism that may be a little surprising. I basically maintain that there's a period in childhood where <clears throat> our parents start paying less attention to us mm. so that we can grow up and become independent. Um, and it's a very painful moment where we're, we have to learn how to separate from our mother and also from our father. And in that moment where we're not getting the love and attention and recognition that we need as very weak, vulnerable children, what normally happens is we develop a self, an idea of who we are that we can love and cherish. And when, so when we're not getting the attention that we desire, we can turn inward and look at our own tastes our own feelings and our own ideas and find kind of solace in just withdrawing into ourselves and feeling like we're a worthy person. And so we end up kind of falling in love with our own ideas and who we are as opposed to just falling in love with our parents. We internalize their qualities, but we fall in love with an image of ourselves in some degree. And so later in life, when we go through moments where we're challenged when we're stressed when we're insecure we can withdraw and not fall so deeply down into depression or self-absorption that we kill ourselves it's kind of a thermostat that raises us up and toxic narcissists people like trump who i call a deep narcissist they lack that quality they never developed a self in childhood that is like the, an anchor for them and if you look at Trump's biography, you can see that very deep, very clearly. People like that have kind of broken, their parents didn't give them enough love and attention so that they had the space to create that kind of self that I'm talking about. His father was actually very mean to him. And so Trump grew up as this very wounded little boy. And his whole life is a strategy for disguising that, for disguising how weak and truly insecure he is. And the only way he can satisfy his neediness is not by turning inward and withdrawing, but by acting out, by being aggressive, by being dramatic, by pushing people's buttons, by doing things that will always make him the center of attention. And unfortunately, people like that can often get very far in life because that kind of dramatic quality can be very appealing particularly in a leader sometimes, but even in an intimate partner. 
And then later we realize that person is totally so self-absorbed. They don't care at all about us. They're just simply using us to get ahead. They're kind of infuriating to have to deal with on a day-to-day basis. But understanding that underneath Trump's bluster and his constant need to push people and be on the aggressive and be on the offensive is disguising the opposite quality is actually very helpful for understanding him. I don't mean that we should suddenly get all soft and love him, you know, and that, that you know, because there's right, right. a lot of us that can't do that. But understanding someone like that is very powerful and very important because we all have to deal with narcissists in our life. We're always encountering them. There's so many toxic narcissists in this world today, particularly on social media. And to understand where it comes from, to understand that they're acting out and being dramatic comes from some deep inner emptiness is actually very valuable. And it can also help you recognize such types in advance so you're not drawn into their drama and you can kind of avoid having a relationship with them. You can kind of see through them and that robs them of their power. Yeah. Well, like I said, it really helps you understand who he is and and why he does the things that he does. So it was fascinating stuff. Hey, uh, running low on time, I want to ask you to comment on one last thing. And 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 my wife will always tell me, you're just you're too emotional. You you allow emotion to just really affect how you operate in the world. And a lot of us think we need to repress that or or hide that and say, well, we'll just take emotion out of it. But you really can't, right? I mean, and you probably shouldn't. You probably need to control it better, perhaps. And you also need to recognize that the reason other people do what they do is probably because it's driven by emotion as well. That's just a fact of life, and that's part of understanding human nature is that emotions are just going to be front and center, yeah? Yeah, it's actually the subject of the first chapter of the book. I try to explain to you why emotions govern us, why so much of our behavior is driven by them, but we don't recognize it. So I explain why that happens. But I'm not trying to say that we need to repress our emotions. First of all, it's not possible. We can't be Spock on Star Trek. It's not possible. Um, But number two, it's not even something that we would want. Emotions are very valuable. Albert Einstein, a great scientist, probably what we would consider the the um, exemplar of rationality, he wouldn't have discovered the theory of relativity without this constant emotional desire, this hunger for truth that was eating away at him, and this kind of joy that he felt when he was approaching the discovery. So emotions drive even the most objective, rational person, even a scientist, towards wanting to discover some brilliant new idea. I, I need a lot of emotion when I'm writing a book, but the idea is I compare it to um, a rider on a horse. Think of the horse as sort of your emotional self, and think of the rider on that horse as sort of your neocortex, the rational thinking part of your nature. And um, that emotion, that horse is a very powerful animal. They can take you very far. But if you don't hold the reins, if you don't guide that horse, it'll just go anywhere or it'll throw you off. But if you hold the reins too tight, it won't have any power or energy. It'll just rear its legs up and and it won't do anything that you want. So the art is you have to hold it kind of gently and guide it. 
And that's how you want to be with your emotions. You want to be the rider. You want to be in control, but not too much in control that you kind of tamp down all the things that make life beautiful and that give you energy and that give you the energy to write a book or to start a company or deal with your family. You want that that power, that force that comes from the emotional self, but you want to be able to have some control over it so that you can guide it and direct it. So if all of your energy is just being exhausted on video games, on distracting yourself, on binge watching TV, that's an example of the horse that's just riding roughshod, going anywhere it wants to in the field. But if you take all that energy, that kind of restless energy, it's making you do all these different things and you channel it into actually something like you're going to write a screenplay, you're going to write a new show or you're going to create a video game or something. You're taking that powerful energy and you're channeling it into something very productive and powerful. That to me is the ideal. And that's sort of the ideal that I, I talk about in the first chapter. Mm. Nothing else be said. What a perfect way to close the conversation. Uh, if you're listening to this and you want to explore all of Robert's books, including the most recent one, The Laws of Human Nature, you can find his books wherever books are sold. But Robert, should anyone want to connect further with you, learn more about you and your work, what's the best place for them to go? Well, I have a website that I've had for many years. It's basically the name for my first three books. It goes Power, Seduction, and War. The and is spelled out. Power, Seduction, and War.com. And on that website, you'll see links to the book I did with 50 Cent to Mastery into the new book, and also a way to write to me if you'd like to. So that's sort of where I would direct people. Outstanding. Robert Green, best-selling author of many books, including the most recent, The Laws of Human Nature. Robert, again, it was a real joy to have you. I'm so grateful for the time you invested today and appreciate you making time to join us on today's show. Thank you so much for having me, Todd. I really enjoyed it. <clears throat> it was my pleasure. All right. It's all the time we have for today. Again, on behalf of my guest, Robert Green, I am Todd Schnick. We'll see you very soon on the Intrepid Way podcast. Thank you for paying attention to today's conversation. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes and most podcast apps by searching for The Intrepid Way. And to support our work, we would certainly appreciate a rating and review. To learn more, check out toddschnick.com. That's T-O-D-D-S-C-H-N-I-C-K.com. We'll see you next time.